Hello, welcome to the Eating for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Harriet Home, founder of Healthy Eating Doctor, registered nutritionist and doctor. I studied medicine at Cambridge University, worked in the NHS for over a decade, have a PhD in genetics, lecture on nutrition and was commissioned to write a novel degree combining culinary skills, nutrition and health. I'm on a mission to break down nutrition myths and share science-backed nutrition to help empower you. I'll share some interviews, theories and practical tips focused around nutrition and health. Stay tuned to find out more. So it's a huge privilege and pleasure to have Dame Prudence Leith with me on my podcast today. And Prue's career has included her own restaurants, catering and cookery school businesses. She's been a board of directors on companies such as British Rail, Halifax, Safeway, Whitbreads, Woolworths, and has published eight novels, a memoir, relish and 14 cookbooks. Prue's probably best known for her role as a judge on the Great British Bake Off, but she's also been a judge on the Great British Menu and My Kitchen Rules. She's taken part in Journey with My Daughter, Wasteless and presented Prue's Great Garden Plot. Prue has had a deep involvement with education and the arts. She's chaired the first of the companies charged with turning around failing state schools and was chair of the School Food Trust, responsible for the improvement of school food and food education. She started and led the campaign for a contemporary sculpture to be exhibited on the 4th Plinth in Trafalgar Square and she's been active in many charities and the Chancellor of Queen Margaret University, Edinburgh. She was also an advisor for the government's Hospital Food Review. Among her awards, she has a DBE, 12 honorary degrees or fellowships from UK universities, the Verve Clicquot Businesswoman of the Year Award, and her restaurants, Leith's, won a Michelin star. She's married with two children and four grandchildren. Just before you listen, I just want to say it was really difficult and challenging technically recording this episode, and I'm really grateful to prove for her her huge patience while recording it. So if it's not quite up to the usual standard, please forgive us, but I think it's so valuable listening to Prue and all of her wisdom that I'd love to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. So it's an absolute privilege and pleasure for me to have Dame Prudence Leith on my podcast this week. And thank you so much for joining me. At this point in the podcast, I usually ask my guests to introduce themselves, but with, with just sort of the headlines of their life. But I think you fitted so much into your incredible career that I'm not sure that's possible. With a DBE, 12 honorary degrees, fellowships from different universities, and the Verve Clicquot Businesswoman of the Year and a Michelin star, how would you describe yourself? Well, I guess I'm a sort of polymath because I can't resist everything. So in my life, I've been um, a cook, obviously, a broadcaster, a novelist. Um, I've campaigned a lot for various things and I've sat on a lot of company boards. So I'm a sort of businesswoman, novelist, writer, journalist, anything you like, really. I just have a go at anything that comes along. Well, you're obviously multi-talented to have got all those achievements. And many congratulations on receiving your um, Dame Commander of the Order of British Empire this year. That must have been a, a very special occasion. Can you tell us about it? It was. It really was. Um, I haven't actually been to the palace and got it yet because there's such a backlog of knights and, and um, you know, CBs and OBs and things to be collected. That um, it might take a few years. And I'm, not, I'm 81 so they better be quick, otherwise I might never get it. <laughs> I don't know. Look at you on television. <laughs> you look as though you're extremely sprightly. So I, I certainly hope you get to do that. Just recording this, obviously, it was the final of the Great British Bake Off went out last night. And uh, I'm a great uh, Bake Off fan. Many people probably of my age will just know you as the, you know, the presenter of that. Or, um, 
yeah. I think it's to vastly underestimate your accomplishments. Uh, so I don't think I could speak to you on here without having a chat about Giuseppe, who was obviously incredible. Did you find it a really difficult final to judge because it all seemed so close? It was quite difficult because they were so good. That last four were all terrific, so it was really difficult to choose between them. But um, <clears throat> in the end, I think Giuseppe was just so brilliant and consistent and Italian. Yeah, I mean, Giuseppe seemed amazing, but it seemed like a really special year as well because he bubbled up, didn't he, for that time? And it seemed like sort of almost a, a national service that you were doing it for the morale of the country. Well, yes, well, we did it twice. We went into this big bubble. <clears throat> and it's, um, it was extraordinarily, the first one, the first year, which was just after the first lockdown, um, when, of course, we were all still very locked down. Um, and um, there were 150 out of us in a hotel in Essex and the 150 was you know all the bakers all the cameramen all the crew all the production staff but they were also covid police really and um and security guards and there were the bakers and all the home economists who helped them with the baking and the hotel staff of course who had to look after us so it became like a big butlins holiday camp and it was really a lot of fun because it was the weather was absolutely absolutely glorious and when I wasn't filming I was getting a suntan you know there was nothing wrong with that but this year it was horrible weather and raining and muddy and cold and the worst summer and we um so I, I was mostly in my room doing you know writing and working so it was just a lot of hard slog oh, so it wasn't so much fun but I must say that the bakers this year I thought were better than they'd ever been and they yeah. were a delightful crowd and they they just liked each other a lot and we liked them so it was it was really happy it's always a happy time actually so is it really yeah. sociable then does everyone socialize off camera do you all eat together and... well when the, the judges um, they all socialize with the crew a lot but we the judges sort of kept sort of not really allowed to get too close to them because they think it might influence our judgment but of course towards the at the end what would happen is when a baker, baker was leaving then we would give them a drink and chat to them and so on um, before they actually went home and towards the and right at the end of course when um, Giuseppe had won we all had a bit of a party and that was lovely. Sounds a lot of fun when you set the challenges who decides on those do you set them or do you bake those amazing cakes we set the technicals um but even then the production team have a lot to do with it because we're always just concerned of trying to find quite difficult things for them to do but that they can do in a very short time and and that it's reasonable um not too impossible but they have to worry about what's come before and how, how it all fits in and they don't want to repeat themselves too often and so obviously there are a lot of people involved. Fair enough. Is it the home economics team then are making those the perfect version that how would it Unfortunately, look like? yes. I wish I could say that that's always me and Paul. It is the home economics team. I mean first of all they're very very good and probably well they might not do something better than Paul but they probably do something better than me. We're also too busy, you know, we wouldn't have time to make that cake the day before in the morning that we're doing that. 
Because yes. you're busy judging and presenting, you know, I, I can imagine yes. it's, it's busy. Uh, you're very humble. It's, as I think it's a great segue from you saying that, uh, <laughs> about those cakes. Let's um, talk about your, your restaurant that you, where you got a Michelin star and sort of go back to the beginning because you're Cordon Bleu trained, is that correct? Yes, I, um, I was in France when I um, became devoted to the idea of a, a life in cooking. And so I went to the Cordon Bleu. I only actually did the advanced course, which was only three months, because that's all I could afford. I sort of bluffed my way into it because they asked me if, they said, you can't join the advanced course if you haven't. You've either got to have done our intermediate course or have been working in a restaurant or had a lot of experience and so on. And they said, have you ever worked in a restaurant? And I said, yes, I worked in a restaurant for two years in Paris. Well, that was perfectly true. But I had been washing up and carrying plates, which I've failed to mention. <laughs> it, was, it was a disgraceful um, distortion of the truth. It got me into the course. And um, we did okay. The Cordon Bleu always taught sort of couples, you know, you would be coupled up with some other um, student. And my fellow student was a woman who had owned a cafe for a long time. So she was a terrific baker. And I was not at all a good baker. I liked savory cooking. And so she used to make all the cakes and I would do, all, you know, so we, we did very well as a pair. But to be honest, I was never the best baker. So it's ironic that I should be um, a judge, but I think I'm a judge more, I think I'm a set of taste buds, that's what they like, that I can, <laughs> and I've done a lot of judging because I've had, when I opened my cookery school, we had 96 students and they would all cook for their exams five different dishes, and so I used to judge 96 students with five dishes every year, so um, I've had lots of experience. And all your, and was it 11 years on the Great British Menu as well? Yes, and 11 years on the Great British Menu. Yeah, I finally gave that up when I put 11 years sitting in the same room is enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, because it was the judge's chamber. You know, we never were, very seldom went into the kitchen or we didn't get to know the chefs or because we just sat there waiting for the food and then we'd taste it and that would be it, which makes a good programme, but it, it's sort of, after 11 years, I thought it's enough. Fair enough. So how long did you have your restaurant for? 25, 26 years. Wow. Um, I opened it when I was um, only 29 in 1969. And I saw it in 95. And um, by then we did have a Michelin star, but it had taken us about 25 years to get one we only got one in the last couple of years of my ownership and that was interesting because I always thought we deserved a, a Michelin star and finally I got so fed up I rang up the um, Michelin, Michelin star people and said I want to speak to the editor <laughs> I didn't think they put me in put me through but they did and I said look why haven't we got a Michelin star you know we're really popular um we know the food's good. We just don't understand it. Is it because we write everything in English? Because at the time, the Michelin star was very French. And I said, is it because we don't write the menu in English, in French and because we only have English cheeses? And you were just, and I went rattling on about what I thought was their problem. And the really lovely editor said, well, would you like us to come and talk to you? I said, what? And he said, yeah, I'll bring my head inspector. He said, we have been watching you for many years and you always just miss it, miss it. But, and they came along with a head, you know, head inspector and they opened this great big book and it was really extraordinary. 
extraordinary because he said, oh, well, now let's take your bread, for example. Um, in August, your bread was absolutely wonderful. It was freshly, it was homemade, obviously fresh. There were two or three, there was a focaccia and a sourdough and a English roll or something. They were all lovely. They were warm. They were perfect. Then in, then in November, suddenly it was, you were buying in, obviously, um, baguettes that were par-baked. And you weren't even baking them very well. And as he was talking, I thought, oh, my God, that's when we lost the, lost the baker. And then we had a guy, a chef, who thought he could make good focaccia, which he could, but that's all he could make. And then he said, then there was some good focaccia, but it, it was the only one and so on. So that was humiliating. And then he said the French dressing on the, on the salads, because we had a sort of, um, you know, like an Italian antipasta, a trolley full of different salads and things. He said, this, uh, we think that you, you're using a Spanish olive oil and you use it on in all the French dressing, in all the dressings for all the salads. And I thought, well, he, you know, what's the matter with that? And he said, I think it would be better if you had a lighter olive oil for the seafood salads and maybe a more herbal one for the, you know, more basil in the tomato. You could make them really different, a bit of mustard. And I thought, oh my God, he's absolutely right. So, so what we did was we, we, I had my head chef there and my manager, and we all said, you know, Mia Kalpa, they're right. And we did everything they said. And the next year we got a Michelin star. Wow. So I've always been a great fan on Michel of Michelin. They really know what they're doing. Presumably you had no idea that they were coming. Were they coming in secretly eating dining yes, at the restaurant? Yes. I mean, the, thing, the funny thing about restaurants is it, whenever a single man comes in to a restaurant on his own and has a notebook, everybody thinks it's the Michelin star man. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a quick, they're in, they're in, you know, to the kitchen and... And so on. Well, first of all, you can't really suddenly cook better. If you're not cooking well anyway, you can't suddenly improve it. But also, often you're wrong. The guy is just writing or tapping away on his phone for some other reason. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so he gets a lot of, you know, people being extra nice and good. <laughs> 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 for no good reason other than the, we fear that he's the, the Michelin star man. Wow. Yeah, I know. We never cooked. Never knew who was coming in. That's quite amazing, really. So, uh, and I've heard you talk before about the challenges of of women owning restaurants. So it's obviously quite amazing you owned it for all of that that time. I've heard you talk about before about about how difficult it is for women to sometimes to get Michelin stars, not because their cooking is any any different or inferior to men, just because of sort of cultural setup and society. How do you think women could, we can support women better? I, I don't think women have any problem with women supporting them. The difficulty is that their husbands don't support them or their boyfriends. Most, most women can't work at night because they've got to look after the children. And men, you know, a woman, a woman will, if, if a man has a nighttime job, woman just accepts that she looks after the children at night. If the woman has a nighttime job, and the fact is you don't get a Michelin star if you're not working at night. You can't get one for having a lunchtime cafe. So it's, it's the guys that are the problem. And also, if you look at the top women chefs, they are nearly always um, either single or I know one of them who is, um, her husband is in the restaurant business. 
so he understands and they share it equally and it's a it's a it's a really big problem it's tricky isn't it i think as well because so i was a doctor for for 10 years and i one of the reasons i i'm no longer a doctor is partly because of family priorities but i think that's probably why lots of doctors marry doctors because they there's that understanding you know what the shifts are and the pressures and the weekends and the nights because you're doing it as well but then it it makes it difficult to to juggle and support the other one but do you think then that maybe there's it's time for a cultural shift that that it should be just as acceptable to have a wonderful restaurant that only does lunch times um and yes but the trouble is people don't really want to spend long time at lunch you know and the, the whole idea of um you know in the old days when i first started um certainly the city boys used to have lunches went on <clears throat> and drinking the don't you know four or five in the afternoon but now almost everybody wants a quick lunch the, the only time they'd have a long a longish lunch a sort of michelin thai thai uh, michelin star kind of lunch is when it's some sort of celebration it's somebody's mm-hmm. birthday or and they're going to take the afternoon off and have a few drinks and it, i just don't think people will spend the money all the time to do it at lunch but what you could change what what culturally should change is that i think restaurants need to be much better at, at having part-time workers which they're not most workers in the restaurant trade are expected to do a six day week many young chefs they are they start working at 10 they work through lunch then they have a couple of hours off and then they work through dinner so it's a very long day and it's true that they have some you know maybe 3 hours off in the afternoon but what can they do with that you know they're in the middle of town they can't afford to go and sit in a in, in a restaurant or a pub and not have anything to drink or not have any you know not not spend money and it's exhausting they need to be somewhere where they can sit down it's all right in the summer they can go and sit in the park if it's nice weather but otherwise it's really very grim life and i think we need to change that the restaurant trade this doesn't pay enough the conditions are not good enough at last the atmosphere in kitchens have has really changed i mean most people most chefs realize that it's very difficult to get good cooks and good chefs and so that they better not be rude to them and bully them and so on in the old days when i first started the amount of bullying in kitchens was just normal everybody thought well i was treated like this when i was a child that's what you do to sort of toughen the kids up but actually you just drive them straight out of the business yes absolutely and now post brexit it's probably even harder to get staff and and hopefully that may then drive standards yeah. up but it must have been a really yeah. tough time undoubtedly for the restaurant trade with brexit pandemic and and now mm-hmm. sort of staff shortages must the, be all those things have exacerbated it and i think we're going to have to just treat staff better give them more flexible hours and um pay them better but paying them better means we have to charge more for food the whole restaurant trade has to change its um ethos really i mean in the old days you could people would be quite tough on young people they'd bully them in the kitchen and it was considered perfectly normal but you know what we now are so desperate for staff in the, in the restaurant trade we need to treat them really well mm. and we need to make their eyes hours more flexible we need to pay them better which i'm afraid means that you have to pay more for your dinner but i think that's fair i mean you think of what a trip to a visitor attraction it's enormously expensive you go to 
um, have a have a massage or even a haircut is expensive. So I think it's time um, people realize that you know cooking a really lovely dinner takes a lot of skill, a lot of effort, and a lot of time and expensive ingredients. It has to be expensive. No, I think fair point. And do you think then that the hospitality industry has changed during your career and focusing more now on understanding nutrition and healthy food and what's yes. that side as well? I think that the restaurant trade has been forced to do that. There've been a few pioneers who've done really well on it. And there's a wonderful organization called the Restaurateurs Sustainable Restaurants Association. And they have really led the way with making sure that food is um, local and healthy and sustainable and so on. But that's only been in the last 10 years, really. Before that, most chefs were rather scornful of anybody who was even vegetarians who got a rough ride, you know. I've always been very keen on vegetarian food. I love it. I'm not vegetarian, but I do like I do like veg. When we, um, my restaurant, I had a real battle persuading the chefs that we had to have a separate restaurant, a, a separate vegetarian menu. Um, that this came around because my sister-in-law, who's vegetarian, objected to having to look on the main menu in order to find what she wanted to eat. And you know, she said, "I don't like choosing my, you know, vegetable something or other um, in between the." calves liver and the suckling pig you know she's i i don't like that anyway so i started we started to have a separate vegetarian menu and what would happen is the waiters would always ask the customers would anybody like to see the vegetarian menu and of course they'd all say yes or somebody on the table would say yes and then we used to find that between 25 and 35 percent of people would eat off the vegetarian menu because carnivores, a lot of them love veg. You know, we all do. We love a risotto. We love a pasta. We love ratatouille. You know, there are lots of things that are very vegan even and that we haven't. Um, so it's not a huge leap for people to start to eat more veg. And um, we do need to eat more veg. I don't know if you've read the National Food Strategy. It was published a few months ago, about six weeks ago. Um, it's written by Henry Dimbleby, who's the guy who started the Leon restaurants. And he's an amazing fellow. And he was asked by the government to write a strategy for food, because if you think about it, you know, the food industry, one way or another, is responsible for most of the um, carbon footprint problems, you know, mm -hmm. raising cattle with transport, we transport a huge amount of food. We also devastate the seas by pushing out, pulling out too much fish. We're responsible for an enormous amount of the problems. That the world has. And yet at COP26, they didn't ever talk about food as a central. Michael Gove got Henry to write this report, and it's absolutely excellent. It's worth a read. It's the first government report I've ever seen that's really readable, as if written by a journalist. You know, there are no arcane references to research papers you've never heard of. It's just about, it's full of facts, but it's absolutely terrific and it's all joined up because of course it's no good having what we have at the moment with the um, government desperately trying to get trade deals because they want to you know show that they have got a lot of trade deals mm -hmm. since Brexit and at the same time the Minister of Agriculture and, and the Environment saying we can't allow all this you know we can't allow imports of food with lesser standards of welfare for animals and health and additives and all the rest of it than we have because yeah. it just opens the door anyway i think they should do what henry dimbleby says <laughs> henry dimbleby says in his report 
that we need to all eat 30% less meat. And so that will, I hope, really encourage people to eat more veg. And I think that's not just for um, the planet, but that's for our health as well. Certainly yeah. there's a link with red meat and an increased risk of bowel cancer, processed meat, so the same. Yeah. And I think we'd all be better off eating more vegetables, more fiber. 90% of us don't eat the 30 grams of fiber a day. So if we were eating more vegetables, we'd be doing better in you know, our health the planet and it's cheaper yeah it's much cheaper i mean for example there's a wonderful there's a, a school a secondary school in sheffield that they have vegetarian food four days a week and it's absolutely wonderful when i went there they were having tacos and they had fantastically good um fillings you know they had all sorts of quite exciting things you know they had obviously sort of um otolenghi style lentil mixes and spicy this that the next day. but they also had salsas made of pineapple and they had um, guacamole and all sorts of quite posh veg food and i said how can you afford it and he said well well, because we never eat we never buy meat and so that means we can afford the best veg and also we can afford to uh, cook it really well and take trouble with it but he's they did have they also have fish on fridays because fish is good for the brain as i'm sure you know but then i know another school in oxford which is entirely vegetarian and the children love it as long as the food is good they will eat it i think that's the key isn't it vegetarian food doesn't have to be bland and but you must have been a real pioneer to have a separate vegetarian menu all those years ago because so i think you know probably when in my childhood the 30 years ago so i'm 40 i'm thinking you know the vegetarian option used to do a nut loaf or something on the, the menu so to actually have a separate menu I think was, was pioneering I know most people used to just um, give you a bunch of veg with a bit of cheese sauce on top mm. it was quite pioneering but it was you know it wasn't that difficult because because we had a rather expensive and smart restaurant and we had a fixed price you had it was a full course meal you could eat as much of it or as little as you wanted but but it was always a fixed price my theory had always been that you're paying for your seat at the table you're paying for the space that you're taking up so I worked out what I needed to charge to not harry you out of your seat you know we wouldn't say you've got to be gone by 10 or anything and it it worked really well people loved it but when the chefs realized that they could actually make more that we could make more money out of vegetarians they got quite keen on it but up till then they'd been very scornful but it is cheaper and what we did was we just sort of adapted. We would have little garnishes on our dishes. For example, we might have, if we have, were having a veal chop or something, it might have a phyllo pastry tartlet with wild mushrooms in it or something. And then we would just take that phyllo tar tartlet and make it a bit bigger and make it the hero dish. And so a lot of the lot of the food we managed to persuade the chefs to do that they were doing anyway mm. they just weren't doing it for veg sure. so i think as well probably things have changed almost like a j-shaped curve i guess that probably we've gone through this phase of from home cooked food to then ultra processed food and now we're there's you know sort of greater understanding that maybe we should be going back to you know whole food less processed do you feel that within your career we do but i do think there's a real problem because we've missed sort of three generations of people who have, have not really learned to cook i mean some schools have stuck with cooking but mostly children have not learned the value of good cooking and so it's not so easy to go back you know if you've been brought up yourself on pretty well junk food and you feel it's never done you any harm, why would you not give it to your children? Because they love it. Mm. And so it's a huge educational 
battle. I mean, my conviction is that we will never get obesity right unless we take a really firm line on school food. I think we should do what they do in Finland, which is they don't allow any lunch boxes. The school feeds the children. It's it's a lesson. Lunch is a lesson. And they have really delicious food. The kids help with the preparation of it. They all do a week a, week a year in the kitchen so that they see the food is freshly prepared and it's wow. from scratch. They all have cookery lessons. They all learn about nutrition in science. By the time they get to lunchtime, they're quite hungry. So they will eat what they're given. The school, the, the teachers sit down and eat with the children. The, um, the guys government subsidizes food just like it subsidizes everything else. I mean, I've always said, if you would, I remember having this argument with Michael Gove, I said, if you make food a lesson, you will have a perfect right to decide what children eat, just Mm. like you do, you decide what the maths curriculum is. And he said, oh, no, no, we can't be a nanny state for parents who object. And I said, well, they don't object to what they're taught in in maths. They don't object to what they're taught in um, science. And they don't have to pay for their ingredients, you know, when they're learning to, um, the chemicals and stuff they use in science and the Mm. art products are provided by the school why isn't the food provided by the school for teaching cooking and so on um, but i've not won this battle yet but there are other countries who do it and and uh, finland used to be the fattest nation in europe because they basically use lived on dairy products and meat high protein diet which was fine when they were digging the snow and you know outside hunting and stuff but now they're all sedentary they'd got really fat but their obesity rates are miles below ours and and we certainly do have a big problem here in this country it's risen 30 percent in the last few years i mean it's it's astonishing isn't it and i agree school is where the change needs to happen and you were the chair of the school food trust i guess you were responsible for the improvement of, of school food it sounds like there were immense challenges what do you think were the biggest ones i mean we did do a lot of good work um, and we taught a lot of dinner ladies who had been old-fashioned dinner ladies who'd learned to make you know suet pudding and custard and stuff and we did convert them into making more healthy food and we, we did teach a lot of schools and we did we did a lot of good good work but the trouble was which always happens is when governments change or ministers change, they tend to be on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And they just, um, when the Tories got in, they had the bonfire of the, of the quangos and they got rid of the School Food Trust. It actually went on as a charity for a while, but it wasn't sustained. We had 70 people working for us, helping schools get it right. And we did a lot of good work with councils and and. Um, you know, getting t- getting grants for children, uh, for schools to get their kitchens up to scratch and so on. So, I mean, you know, at the moment, it's actually law. The children have to be taught cooking once a week um, until they're 15 in schools. And, and nobody even knows this because it never happens. And that's wow. because they made it, they passed a law saying that the children had had to be taught cooking what they didn't do is put any money behind it and half the schools don't have kitchens because they were all ripped out when computers needed space we don't have enough food teachers and there's a crazy anomaly everybody's desperate for more food teachers but we've stopped teaching um, cooking at A levels so if a child is really keen on food now that 15 thinks I'd like to do hospitality or cooking or catering or domestic science or whatever it's called for my last two years at school they can't so there's this gap. And then by the time they're 18 and they leave school, they won't be thinking about going into the restaurant trade or into the or into teaching cooking because they haven't learned anything for the last two years. So that's really needs changing. 
and joined up thinking. I hadn't realized that that was uh, a legal requirement to teach. Uh, I'm, I mean, I feel privileged that my son does actually get cooking lessons. He's age six and they've got a, a healthy school policy where you're not allowed nuts and chocolate and sweets and, and crisps and those sorts of things in your in your lunchbox. But I think it's a big challenge and I'm grateful for people like, like you who've tried to really move the conversation on. And I think then um, I'd really like to talk to you about your role in the, the government's hospital food review because I think that hospitals and schools in, have a lot of similarity. The, the hospital food from an from a ex-doctor and also from a patient and from a parent of a child in hospital the experiences that I've had have been absolutely shocking and I think when I know how important nutrition is for health that we really should be improving that so that must have been really really difficult for you tell us about what the challenges were well, the interesting thing is when <clears throat> when they asked me, Matt Hancock was the health secretary and he asked me if I would come and lead this hospital food um, review and I First of all, I said no, because I thought, you know, I've been here before, I know what will happen, that he'll be able to announce something wonderful, he'll be a hero for a few minutes, have his photograph and paper, and then a year later or two years later, they'll take the money away and it won't happen, because the various um, sort of celebrity chefs have been pulled in to try to help hospital food, but they've, it's always been, well, this will be a pilot, and if it works, we'll roll it out. Well, it's, it never rolls out, because there's, the, the minister's changed. He's not, he's not going to get any glory for, for rolling out somebody else's programme. So he just drops it, generally. I mean, I may be being a bit unkind, but, but that's, I've seen that happen in school food and so often. So I said no. And then Matt rang me up and said, look, I'm really serious about this. I, I'm hanging my hat on this. I want to change school food. I actually believe food can be medicine. And he said, what's more so does the Prime Minister? And the reason, and Boris Johnson has just had COVID, so he had decided that food diet was probably one of the reasons that he really struggled with COVID. So anyways, I went to see the prime minister. It was quite funny. And, and I agreed to, to do it. And I must say that the reason I felt it would really work this time, and I'm still hopeful, is because everybody around that table, the, the, the review panel, they were all, except for me, from the NHS. They were doctors or nutritionists or administrators or caterers who were working in the NHS. So they knew the problems mm -hmm. and they also knew what could be done and what would work. And as a, just as one tiny example, only for the, the, high, the biggest complaint about food in hospitals is no toast. People want to have toast toast is comforting when you're not feeling well it's the only thing you want to eat when you feel sick you can eat a piece of toast so you think that would be easy 40 mm. percent of hospitals actually make toast on the ward but 60 percent of them don't and they say generally things like um well it's you know, the health and safety won't allow it because the, the fire has it or something well you know 40 percent of hospitals manage it perfectly well and you know, you really don't want toast that's made in the basement. I agree, and I can understand that. I can understand, and also as a as a doctor, I used to try and you know, at like five o'clock in the morning, have a piece of toast. I think toast is universal, whether you're. It's it's quite. It's also something to be associated with hospitals, but it'd be just really nice if um, you know it could be changed to a, a healthier healthier piece of toast as well not just that it's it's warm but it's healthier and I think there are lots of um difficulties with it and it's probably partly a lot of it comes down to money and you know the NHS is fighting so many fires and with huge backlog in patients and trying to get cancer treatment within the two-week wait and, and all those things I can see why food sort of falls down the list but I think that 
it really needs a long-term approach. We need to think about how important it is long-term. It's not, these, you know, it's not short stays in hospitals. Exactly. I mean, and I mean, Rupi has been saying this for ages, and he's absolutely right. And there are, and there are now more doctors who realise that food can be a medicine. Um, but you know, you think that in your training, you probably had no nothing to do with nutrition and cooking at all. Most doctors don't. They get if they get half a morning. It's it's a lot. So we do need to um, get doctors um, subscribing a healthier lifestyle rather than just always reaching for a packet of pills. You know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There's a lot to be done. But what what I was fascinated by about the hospital food thing, which I had not really realised, two things. One was that there are fifty five different diets or allergy problems or um, medical demands that so caterers have in a really big hospital they will be dealing with 50 different um, things and I want patients to get a menu that only refers suits them not to get an enormous folded double triple five pages of you know, sometimes they've worked it out really well and they've got all sorts of symbols for the vegetarians, the vegans, and the, you know, kosher and halal and, and all the rest of it. But if you're feeling ill, the last thing you want to do is look through a menu like that. And it, it should be possible, and we saw this done in, in um, Germany really, really well, is, you know, when doctors, you're always asked a half a dozen questions, usually 20 times, you know, know what's your problem blah 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 and what's your name what's your date of birth and all this and i understand that that's important but at that time they also should ask the patient what their preferences are what their allergies are what their um religious things but also what they like and what they don't like and with a computer algorithm you can very easily lift out of this massive menu exactly what that patient would like it's no good saying you've got to eat something. I remember going into a guy's hospital years ago and talking to an 80-year-old woman who bust her hip and she was in hospital. She was very slim and she'd been very fit. But there she was lying in hospital, losing even more weight because they wouldn't give her the food she liked. And I said, what, what, give me an example. So she said, well, they may want me to eat poached eggs because they're healthier, but they're slimy and I don't like them. And they want me to eat bread with, you know, wholemeal bread with seeds in it and stuff, which I'm sure is very healthy. But she said, I've eaten white bread all my life and I really don't feel like it. I want, actually, I want white fried bread with fried egg on top. Well, actually, that's what she needed. She mm. needed a lot of protein and she needed feeding and she needed the food she likes. But because of some, you know, they, at that time, they, they got into this health thing and the nutritionists were in charge. And you need you need to be flexible about these things, you know. And um, it would be so easy to get every. But of course, what what's going to happen? And I must say, the wonderful thing is that the government has accepted all our eight recommendations for. And some of them won't come in on stream straight away because they require building forty years old in hospitals. Yeah. They need modernising. And um, the other thing that I find really surprising was that I had got a sort of foodie prejudice that the best food is cooked from scratch at the last minute as close to the patient as possible. 
And it's true that if you look at the hospitals that do that, they, the ones that usually, when I was judging a, a hospital food competition the other day, and guess what, the hospital that won has exactly that. You know, it has really good chefs, very close to the patient, and it's all done at the last minute. But that's not honestly practical for a lot of big hospitals. And the truth is that if it comes out of a factory, I, I, I was absolutely convinced that this business of ordering little pellets of single portions of, say, um, lamb or chicken, which are all in absolutely indecipherable, and they all taste exactly the same. They are freeze-dried pellets, which are made in Taiwan or wow. China or somewhere. And they're the cheapest possible chicken, the cheapest possible lamb. It's free, freeze-dried, minced into little pe pellets like animal food. And then it's put in little dishes. And then they put a frozen, and they put a sauce on, mix it with a sauce, you, you know, any kind of sauce. So you can have a cheese sauce or a tomato sauce, or whatever. also, which is full of additives and rubbish, because it's, mm. it's not, not good food. And... And then I, so I thought, I was really indignant with the hospitals who were serving this awful, awful food. And, and then I would looked at the contracts and the contract had no mention of quality, nothing but cost. And that's partly a result of, of the public finance initiative, you know, because catering, I don't know if you remember, but when the, these big modern hospitals were built, because the, they were built by the private sector, they wanted to have, um, they wanted to get the costs down. So what they did was they sort of subcontracted all the catering and their contracts with these caterers was, you know, you'll feed people for two pounds mm. or whatever it was. And um, anyway, so what I discovered that, and I should have known this because after all, we all know that um, Tesco's finest or Marks and Spencer's um, falafel and ready meals are absolutely delicious and they come from a factory they come from a hub but they put in good ingredients in there and the cooks in the factories know what they're doing they have really good chefs development chefs they have really good systems to make with the sure that what the development chef says goes into the dish and it works fine so i've now i had to drop my prejudice about hubs that's not the problem. The problem is the contract. Yeah, and the quality. And the, and the training of chefs. There are lots of, you should have a look because even if you just read the eight recommendations, they really are very good. National food strategy. Yeah, I've, I've read them. I, I think you've done a fantastic job. I, I think um, it was a huge, an area of huge unmet need. So, um, you know, thank you for doing that. We've talked so much about um, food and your culinary skills and presenting skills that I think you've had such a, a varied life and I find your passion for life, including all your sort of varied interests, really inspiring. Um, so what led you to start the campaign for a contemporary sculpture on the fourth pillar of Trafalgar Square? Oh, right. Well, that was quite a long time ago. I was, I'd just become chairman of the Royal Society of Arts. I've always been very interested in arts and artisanship and crafts and so on. And I was driving around um, Trafalgar Square and I saw that this plinth was, you know, it had been empty for 25 years that I'd, I'd lived in London. And so I wrote a little note to the Evening Standard, you know, dear, dear sir, why didn't they put back whatever was taken down? It must have been fixed by now. You know, I imagined it was an equestrian statue. I said, it's just full of pigeon poo and it looks awful and why didn't we do something about it? 
And lots of people wrote in and said, stupid woman, doesn't she realize it's never, ever had anything on that plinth. It's all, it was intended for William IV. And he was so unpopular. But when he died, nobody would put up his statue. In fact, they put the statue up somewhere else. So, and, and then ever since then, people have argued about what should go on. And, you know, one man's hero is another man's villain. And so it's never been agreed what should go on that statue. And so that was like a red rag to the bull. You know, I immediately wanted even more to crack them. And what we finally came up with, and I got a little committee together who were really good artists and, and um, administrators who know about art. And, and we proposed that we would have a changing exhibition of contemporary art. And that had the advantage that nobody would complain about it because they'd, first of all, they could campaign to get their favorite artist up there or their favorite statue or whatever. But also uh, they would not complain about something they didn't like because they'd know it would be coming down in a year. You know, it would take at least a year for them to get rid of it by campaigning. By then it would be gone anyway. Mm -hmm. So that just took away the objection straight away. And it sort of suited me because I thought, you know, it's such a traditional square. It's really nice to have something that is modern and different. And some of the sculptures are, are absolutely inspiring. Some of them I think are awful. I don't like the current one. That's a big ice cream cone with a, with a, a drone landing on it. I'm sure it means something. <laughs> I have a legacy. It'll be that I, I mean, people won't know that, that I started that thing, but um, it's what I'm proudest of because, you know, it took five years of, of having to take this idea to, I think we took it to 13 different committees, you know, wow. the Georgian Society, the Fine Art Commission, the, this, that, the next thing, before we got planning commission. Oh, huge, huge achievement. And um, you're also a prolific author, having published eight novels and a memoir, your memoir Relish, and 14 cookbooks. But how did you find writing such a personal memoir? Well, I decided right at the beginning, I'm sort of wanting to write it for a long time. Um, and my publishers had been badgering me to write an autobiography because they knew I'd had quite a colourful life and they thought it would be fun. And I wanted to write, a, a, I, at the time, I wanted to write a trilogy of novels about which would have the development of food in the background, you know, from rationing in the war until sort of vegan food now or whatever. Just the whole way through Nouvelle Cuisine and comfort food and passions in food in England. And so I was saying, I want to write the trilogy first. And they kept saying, no, let's write the, you should write your autobiography. So I, I, I gave in and said, yes, okay. And I did that first. And um, it was, I just decided that, if you're writing an autobiography, you have to tell the truth and you have to only tell things that are interesting. Of course, you can leave stuff out, but if it's interesting and it's true, you should put it in. Um, and so I did. And so there, but of course, you know what newspapers are like. I mean, they like just sensation, you know. So I was sort of a little upset that, that when the, my book came out, it was all full of you know, my life sounded like, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> you know, I mean, the drugs part was, for example, that I, I used to have a pop group who lived in my in the little house next door to me, and they used to hide their, their um, hash in my herb jars, or in similar jars to my herb, because they thought, figured that I'd be, never be raided because I was such a respectable cook. You know? <laughs> they might be raided, so they used to keep that. Um, drugs with me. It was only hash. It wasn't that. It wasn't that 
terrible. And then, you know, um, I once went to a party in, in Paris, which I didn't realize I was going to. I went with a friend. And it turned out to be an orgy, you know, with lots of people stark naked, all copulating all over in, in lots of rooms. And I realized very quickly that, that I was getting more people saying, for God's sake, why have you got clothes on? Take your clothes off, you know, that I'd be better off, more invisible if I did take my clothes off because I was the only person with clothes on. So then I walked around naked for a couple of hours until this friend of mine had done whatever he was doing and <laughs> was prepared to go home. And we went home. So it wasn't anything. It was a non-event. Wow. But it was funny, and I so I put it in because I thought it was funny. So then, of course, every newspaper went on about how about my orgies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it sounds fascinating. I mean, it must have been quite an experience. I, I love your uh, your thinking about taking your clothes off to be more invisible, but obviously worked. Yeah. I mean, I had had a, a, an affair with my husband for thirteen years before we actually married, and we kept it a secret because we, he. He really loved his wife, and I loved her too, and she was a friend, and, and I didn't want to get married particularly. And so that worked fine for 13 years, um, and I didn't feel too guilty about it because I knew it made him happy. And, you know, I mean, anyhow, when you're in love, you, you just, you know, you're not reasonable. I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud of adultery. I think it's wrong, but I couldn't have done anything else. You know, I absolutely loved him. And... Um, and then I became pregnant and that changed everything because I wanted to have the baby. So, so then we told everybody that was a bit unha unhappy for a while. But we remained friends. And, and um, his first his wife used to come and stay with me. Both families were very close to each other. So we stuck close to each other. And that's amazing that you managed to do that. So that's, that's a lovely yeah. ending. Well, my husband was determined to, of course, it was difficult at first. And, and, she was terribly upset and everything, but he was he was just absolutely determined to stay friends. He said, "I'm too old to make new friends, and I love these people, and I'm and you know you love them too, and we we must just they'll come around." One last question then. Um, so I know that you obviously uh, know Rupi really well, and I really enjoy watching you and Rupi on um, Waste Less. How did all that come about? And um, and I think it's a really great program because. I think so many people in modern society are used to package processed food and actually don't know what to do with waste and haven't been taught at school or, or from their parents that, um, you know, we go very much by sell-by dates and best-befores and, and, and live almost sort of quite a robotic life with food sometimes. The sad thing is I think a lot of people shop is that they go around the supermarket and they just pick out all the things that they know the family like without thinking how many days are there that we're all going to be there. And so at the end of the week, they will still have, you know, a packet of um, chicken breasts and, uh, you know, a couple of ready meals and that they haven't eaten. And you, you just have to manage that fridge all the time, you know, you, and use your freezer as your best friend. But most importantly, don't just shop by picking up everything. Just, uh, you know, make a list of what you want to buy. And then say you've said you're, you're going to buy whatever, whatever it is, let's say you're going to buy lamb chops. If you decide you're going to pick up pork chops, don't do it as well. Don't take the lamb chops. You, you don't need all that food. And it's, it's a sort of disgraceful waste. And because people don't 
I mean, it wouldn't be bad if they knew about cooking and they knew how to cook because they would then think, you know, after a day or two, oh my God, I've got too much of this. So I'll make this into soup or I'll make this into a casserole and I'll freeze it and we'll have it make next week easier. But often they don't have time. I think the two main problems with that program for, for our um, families was either lack of time. I mean, one, one of the couples, they were both doctors, so you know how, how difficult that is. And so they were really short of time. And the other problem was that they had picky children. Mm. And I think that's, that's a, a really modern problem. I mean, you know, everybody always says that when people of my age will always say that they were given no choice and if you didn't eat it, you didn't eat it. You know, my husband would say it would come back next you know, if he didn't eat his porridge for breakfast, he'd get it for lunch. Uh, that never happened to me. I, my parents never forced me to eat anything, but there wasn't any option. You know, it was eat it or not. And we didn't snack all the time. I mean, we never had anything to eat in between meals. And I, I would love us to go back to something like that because I think one of our problems with school food and, and with obesity and everything is that nobody is ever hungry anymore. You're not... Um, because we eat, the minute we feel the slightest bit hungry, hungry, we go and have another snack or a great big in a calorie-laden bucket of coffee or chocolate malted milk or something or other. Um, and I think if you, you know, especially in school food, then by the time they'd got to lunch, they would be prepared to try new food. But if they're full of chocolate and stuff, they won't try something new. And so they eat the same thing every day, pizza. I think it's a really difficult balance, though, because I know from both professional and personal experience that if the child's too hungry, then they get really hangry, you know, and, and then oh. it's game over. So you have to find yeah, that sweet spot. They have need to have breakfast. You see, one of the problems with children is that I think 40% of children don't have any breakfast before they get to school. So they're, of course they're hungry. Mm. And, they, and a lot of them are given money to buy food on the way to school so of course they buy chocolate bars and eat it straight away i don't think government has really got a grip on the fact that food is so important to our health and happiness and to the economy and to everything because you know it's always left to charities i mean the two best charities i can think of in school food are gain henry dimbleby the same man who did the national food strategy he started chefs in schools which gets really good cooks to be dinner dinner ladies or dinner dinner men and but they those chefs also teach the children about um, cooking and they teach the children and they sit down with the children and teach them about nutrition they're mostly in primary schools but it's absolutely wonderful to see little kids eating all sorts of different things really it's really easy to teach children in in primary school to eat well, as long as the food is delicious, well-prepared, and you have somebody encouraging them to do it. As soon as the, the class above them eats it, they will they will just follow suit because they want to be like the big boys, big girls. No pressure. So it can be done. But I mean, I think that my central point is that no charity can cover the country. No charity can do the job that government needs to do. And government needs to really concentrate on food for the sake of the planet and for our health i agree entirely absolutely i think we've got a long way to go but thank you for 
for being so part of that conversation and driving change so, so well. So thank you. And it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Um, really, really fascinating, really interesting talking about all of the your amazing skills, achievements and, and varied life. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, I've loved it. Thank you.